the pastor's heart and Dominic Steele and thanks for joining us and what does a sex therapist wish senior pastors knew my guest is Monica Cook she's a sexologist she's a Christian uh, her website says that the common issues she talks to people about are difficulty in maintaining a healthy sex life after having children ineffective communication around sex mismatched libidos or low libidos sexual boredom painful sex pornography or sex addiction erectile dysfunction premature ad- ejaculation and difficulties with orgasm and arousal, understanding menstrual cycles and challenges in how religion and faith and cultural practices intersect with sexuality. There's a lot of issues there that many people have. And Monica, can we start with the pastor's Mm. heart? And as pastors, uh, we want to do good for our people. And yet sometimes, I think you were saying to me a couple of weeks ago, we as senior pastors or people on pastoral staff may not be doing the best thing when people come to talk to us. Um, What do you think we get wrong? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think the first place to start is with a bit of self-compassion as well, because it is a very complex area. Um, You know, you're dealing with people with their their core beliefs, with their value systems. Um, They're often dealing with their own heart issues of shame, or they might have trauma and strong emotions in that space. So, it's, um, it's a complex area, but I think what I'd love to see is I think when people come to see their pastors, uh, there's a sense that uh, the, the pastor feels like he has to tell them what the right thing to do is, um, you know, whether that be theologically, they think that's going to fix the problem. But in actual fact, often the person coming to see the minister or the pastor already has a sense of knowing that often and has often even tried to to change their life or try to work with whatever their issue is, but they're actually coming to the minister for a different reason, um, which is more of a relational one. They're wanting to step into a space that is safe, non-judgmental and um, compassionate space where they can share what's going on for them. And I think that's actually the emphasis that I would love to see um, pastors uh, kind of holding like a holding container for mm-hmm. those people that are wanting to come and talk and I, I really love that um, passage in John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11 where Jesus is um, presented with this woman that's caught in adultery and I love it because I think it beautifully frames where I, what I think ministers should step into the very first thing that Jesus says is who here is free of sin you know, is without sin. And that is the first step, I think, for ministers, is actually to look inward into their own heart um, to potential sin in, within their own sexuality and their own sexual journeys, mm-hmm. so that as they're working with whoever that has approached them, there's a, a sense of awareness and compassion and, and also um, prayer over their own sex life as mm-hmm. they're working with this person. Because as we know, so many of our top leaders have... Um, struggled with this and when it's Mm. exposed it's pretty epic Um, so I would love to see an inward uh, sort of uh, perspective as well of looking inward at their own hearts in this space prayer for themselves prayer getting other people to pray for their protection as well as um, the person that they're working alongside with Um, and then the next thing Jesus says is nor do I condemn her so there's actually then a space for how do you work with this person to let them know that they're not condemned in Christ? And walking in that journey with um, an awareness of uh, where the separation is occurring, they're obviously struggling with a particular issue and maybe they're trying to take 
things, matters into their own hands. It's not working out so well. So what is their need that God or Jesus could step into to fill that need? It might be that they're lacking in validation or then they're needing to turn to whatever they're doing as part of self-soothing. But how could God actually meet them in their need? And I, would, I think that's the role of ministers and pastors yeah. is to understand how God can heal them mm-hmm. in whatever they're trying to do on their own and it's not working. And then the final thing he says, it's the very last thing he says, is go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we get it reversed. There's a real sense of like quickly we've got to stop the sin. But actually the final part is then once they're on the path to healing, once they're getting um, closer to, to God in their journey and they're starting to feel his movement in their life, then it's how do we put in support structures and connect them up with accountability partners or whatever it might be, whatever the issue is that they're dealing with, to ensure that they stay on track um, and um, go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love that flow. Um, I really feel like that's um, important to keep in mind for ministers as, they, as they're helping people in this space mm. as a framework. The other thing I wanted to say is I feel like, and this is certainly the feedback I get from my clients, is that sometimes when they go and talk to a minister, their issues can sometimes be minimised because there's a sense that, well, sexuality is just a small component of your bigger relationship. You know, don't worry, it's only a very small section. Like, build other things as well. Um, And the reason why I think that's unhelpful is because of a piece of research that just came out by um, a sexologist, um, Barry McCarthy and his wife, Emily. And I want to read this because I think this is really powerful. It said that um, basically spouses attribute only 15 to 20% of their happiness to a pleasing sex life, but unhappy spouses ascribe 50 to 70% of their distress to sexual problems. So what that means, what the translated is that when things go well, then yes, sex takes up a very small component of the relationship. But when things are not going well, it can be very distressing for a couple and the consequence is quite far reaching within the relationship. So I think it is really important to take what people are, are telling you seriously if something's not going right in their sexual relationship. So. Yeah. In the first part of your answer there, you, you mm. took me down the line of when sexual sin was involved. But in the second yeah. part, you were talking more about um, not so much sin in a relationship, but yeah. struggle sexually Struggles. in a relationship. Yes. And yes. so um, how might I muck it up mm-hmm. in the... So I suppose it's, uh, what you're saying is the, the area I'm likely to muck it up when it's a struggle area rather mm-hmm. than a sin area is by minimising. Mm-hmm. That, that's what you're saying. Yes, yes, exactly. And I mean, it could be it could be a sin as well. Mm-hmm. It could be that someone comes to, to you struggling with what they think is, is sinful or... Um, but something like mismatched libido is not sexual sin. Absolutely. It's just the way it is at the moment. Exactly, yeah. but it's still a struggle for them in the relationship. So taking that seriously and giving them the space to talk about that and also letting them know that help is available. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other element here too, is how you know where your role as minister ends and where the role of a sex therapist begins. You, you said is. to me earlier that that mm-hmm. was a bit of a kind of a struggle point that you felt like um, sometimes ministers, we're weighing into areas that are outside our expertise. And yes. Do you want to give us that? Yeah, yeah sure. Because I think... 
Um, and that's why in that, what I was talking about with the adultery kind of mm -hmm. um, section is very much sticking to helping them find um, how whatever they're engaging in is impacting on their, th on their spiritual walk. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to um, the other aspect, you know, like mismatched libidos, there's also so many other things that feed into that. Mm -hmm. There's the biological, there's the psychological, there's childhood trauma, there's... Um, and because so many things feed into sexual function, you need someone that is across all of those areas mm -hmm. that can understand how they all work together to end up in certain issues for mm -hmm. people. So you need someone that sort of sits over all of those areas and understands how to identify what the underlying issues are and then with enough tools and, and interventions to be able to then go in at the heart of whatever it is that's causing the issue and to address that. And so that's why I think it's so important to also always mention that professional help is available because you need someone that sits in that space. The other important thing is, I guess, finding a therapist that is, um, will respect your Christian values, mm -hmm. if you're Christian, because what can happen is if, you, if you're working with someone that doesn't appreciate that, um, the very first thing they'll probably work in is in the space of how do we start to shake your core belief that it's about God's vision for your sexuality? Because that's seen as being part of the problem, actually. Right. <laughs> They'll in, start in the to, secular thinking. In the secular thinking. So it's going to be more of an issue of how do we start to shake what God's vision for your sexuality is and what is your own vision for sexuality, actually? What do you want from your sex life? Um, and it's a very subtle shift, but it's really unhelpful right, when... Actually teaching me to sin. Exactly, yeah. Well, it, I mean, you know, it, it depends on what comes out of what that person's vision for their own sexuality is, but it's it can be problematic then, especially if the therapist is triggered by some of the things this conservative person might be saying to them mm -hmm. and very concerned by them. Um, it also means that some of the interventions that they might, that might be suggested um, w might not be aligned with their values either. Mm -hmm. So it might be, um, why don't you use some porn to help um, increase your desire mm -hmm. and, and turn to fantasy, you know, as a, as a possible way of moving forward? Or how about you introduce a third party into this um, kind of system to, to kind of work with whatever mismatched libidos or whatever it might be? So it's about also making sure that um, whoever, whichever therapist you're going to see will be able to work and respect with those values of yours. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. How did you get into this business? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. You see, I have a real passion for um, science and communication. Mm -hmm. And I realised, I worked in health education for a long time, and I realised that there was one part of um, science communication that was just done so poorly. Mm -hmm. And there was all this research out there, um, but none of it was actually reaching the general public and helping them in any way. Mm -hmm. And people were going online and um, trying to find answers to these questions. We don't get talked, taught about pleasure, sexual mm -hmm. pleasure. We get taught about STIs and contraception and um, what not to do, but we don't really get much um, training and discussion in the area of how do we actually um, enjoy sex mm -hmm. once, we, once we're in this you know, safe mm -hmm. relationship. And... Um, people were going to online sources and then you get pornography, which is really unhelpful vision of mm -hmm. what um, a healthy sexual relationship uh, looks like. And so I really felt um, a real desire to step into that space mm -hmm. um, and bridge the gap between um, 
yeah, what was happening, the research, and also um, what, how we use that to then encourage couples. And then with my Christian background, I realised there's even less people talking about it mm-hmm. in the Christian circle and such great needs. So then it all kind of came together and this is where I am. And God just kept on opening doors. So a lot mm-hmm. of us as pastors, we speak mm-hmm. into couples' relationships, particularly at the beginning. Where yeah. people, people come to us for marriage preparation. Yeah. Um, what do you want us to say that we might not be saying in that space? Yeah. yeah. Um, the first thing I would say is be really aware of some of the myths that people will come in with um, that are really unhelpful and go on to have really unhelpful kind of consequences mm-hmm. in their marriage. So um, there's a sense that if you've been sexually pure before marriage, that your sex life is going to be awesome on the other side, that mm-hmm. God owes you that almost. Mm-hmm. Um, or a, a reverse, and the reverse flip side, if you've not been... Um, you know, done what they perceived God has wanted you to do mm-hmm. in your past, that somehow it's going to result in a dysfunctional sex life afterwards because mm-hmm. you've sinned. And then there's also people struggling with having been told sex is bad and disgusting and gross and bad, 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 and then suddenly flip the switch, they're having to be married, and suddenly sex is good, go for it. Um, couples really struggling in that space to make that switch, not just mentally, but in their body. It's a felt sense that Sex so, is so still how do, bad. How do you help people in that? What What do you want us to say in yeah. that space? Yeah. yeah. So, um, what do you say in that space? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, as I was saying, it's it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just being told sex is good and God made it for you know two people to enjoy and um, you know it's it's healthy. It's so much more than that because it's felt sense. It's actually in the body. Um, and so part of my work is actually in um, first education. So, I've, you know, I've got my models over here. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, show you. I usually All kind right. of, <laughs> you know, use models and things to mm-hmm. at least help frame and understand, help them understand what is happening in their body. Mm-hmm. Often people have not even seen their own anatomy and understand mm-hmm. how it works. And so it is gross because it's unknown and it's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of, and then there's a normalization of mm-hmm. what goes on in that space, which once again, we don't do much education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really identifying what is gross about it. What is, what is exactly at the core of this? What mm-hmm. is bad? What is gross? And trying to understand what the narrative is in their head that they're telling themselves about where, it, where that grossness is, is mm-hmm. coming from. And then, like I said, because it's, it's more than a head thing, it's actually in the body, I do a lot of somatic work around allowing yourself to feel pleasure in your body, opening yourself up to pleasure and starting where it feels safe. Mm-hmm. So that might be lying in the sun mm-hmm. and on the beach and allowing yourself to feel what that feels like as you lie on a beach. And that's where you start because then once you are able to sink into that, then it opens up your body will naturally be curious about what the next pleasure place will be. And you start to sort of rewire the brain almost into realising the body learns that this can be pleasurable, this can actually be good experience, this mm-hmm. is a safe experience. Um, and so that's kind of how I work um, mm-hmm. in that space, particularly for, and partic- it's a big issue particularly for women mm-hmm. as well. Um, but jumping back... A bigger back to, issue for women? Um, well, it's, it's interesting because it's, um, I think women are often a lot more kind of um, judgmental over their own bodies. There's mm-hmm. a lot more judgment over how they feel, how they sit in their own body. For men, 
there's a lot of pressure, performance pressure is their biggest issue. Mm -hmm. um, and so if they're going to come in with thinking sex is bad, 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 it's often because they feel the pressure of having to be something that they're, they're you know, um, not sure they can step into. Mm -hmm. So they come in already with anxiety mm -hmm. um, around that space. So that's that's one myth. There's also other things that they they um, struggle with, like sex is, now that I'm in a relationship, then I'm entitled to have sex whenever mm -hmm. I want. Or the flip side, which is um, it's all about the other person's pleasure and it's not like it's not about my own pleasure. And then mm -hmm. they come in saying, why am I not enjoying sex? It feels like such a chore. Mm -hmm. um, so those things I just wanted to highlight for ministers, just to be aware of those things if they hear it in the conversations and jump on them and, and help them move towards a healthier vision, which is what, I, what I'm about to say now because I think this is so important, is setting them a healthy and realistic framework mm -hmm. as they're going into marriage of um, the fact that sex is dynamic. It's always, it, you know, it looks different from day to day, which means that it might be awesome one day, it might be not so good the next day, but so long as both partners are satisfied and um, getting moving towards each other in closeness, that's what matters. Mm -hmm. And I use this, um, I use the metaphor of a garden, which is actually quite biblical, mm. you know, all through the Song of Songs, mm. a garden is used. And I think there's a reason for that. And that is that a garden is dynamic. It's always growing, it's always changing. It's um, dependent on the weather, so, the, you know, the immediate circumstances of your life, but also the season um, that that couple might be in. It's dependent on the quality of the soil, how many weeds are growing in that garden. And I, I can extend the metaphor. I, won't, I know we don't have time for that, but helping them to understand that, you know, also no two gardens are the same. They're all different. And it's, there's a lot of fumbling and exploration that needs to happen to get to know this garden. And together, you can landscape this garden too. So what is your shared vision for your gardens then? So you get to design that. The world doesn't get to tell you what it should look like or what it needs to look like. You guys get to design this garden. God gives the beautiful boundaries mm -hmm. and, and framework. But you, there's a lot of creativity within the space mm -hmm. of your garden and you get to do that, um, which is exciting for couples. But they're so often so caught in thinking that needs to look a particular way. So encouraging them, you know, in, in that space. And also um, the idea that if you're in a garden, you don't have to run to all the corners of the garden to officiate, to, for it to officially be sex. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another huge issue. So what do you issue. mean by that? I'll explain it. So basically people think that sex equals intercourse mm -hmm. and that all these things have to happen. You need to have the foreplay. You need to do this. You need to do this. And then you have um, intercourse and that's sex. But actually, there's sex and intercourse is just one dish on the table, so to mm -hmm. speak, of many other dishes that a couple can choose from, depending on their energy level. So in the sense that, uh, and I think part of the problem with this is that, you know, a lot of Christians have often engaged in all that foreplay and, and things before they've got to marriage and they've identified intercourse as being the pinnacle of sex. So mm -hmm. they've avoided that. And then when they get to marriage they go ahead and have intercourse, they have sex, and then suddenly sex becomes all about intercourse without the rest of the foreplay and the other enjoyment, enjoyable stuff that they did beforehand. So sex becomes about intercourse. And that's really unhelpful too because then it puts a lot of pressure 
on the relationship to always be having intercourse for it to be officially sex. So you you send me down two thoughts there. One is, I mean, what's sin and what's not sin before marriage? And uh, what are you suggesting should be on the banquet table after marriage? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So let's take the second question. What should be on the banquet table after marriage? So many things. You know, it's not just about intercourse. It could be about manual pleasure. It could be about kissing and touching and fondling. You could go down, you know, the oral route if you wanted to. You know, there's so many different ways in which couples can engage sexually and intimately with one another that doesn't have to be all about intercourse. Mm -hmm. And because if it is all about intercourse, then it's very goal-oriented. And the minute it becomes goal-oriented, it places a lot of pressure and anxiety, which immediately cuts across desire and cuts across enjoyment Mm -hmm. because it becomes about a a performance. Mm -hmm. We have to to get there for it to be officially sex. Um, And that's what I find myself working in all the time is is couples coming in having lost their enjoyment, um, tired, they've had kids, Um, you know, they've got busy jobs and they're not having sex because they think that every time they engage in sex, it has to look like this huge thing. When in actual fact, they could just lie beside each other and touch each other. And that's sex. You know, that's, you know, touch each other, get to arousal. Um, It just, and so I always encourage my couples to not be limited by a very, very small concept of what sex is, but to enjoy the variety and diversity of enjoying each other's bodies, mm-hmm. um, particularly after sex, so that it's like, what do you have energy for tonight, sweetheart? Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe level two? You know, mm-hmm. you want to just have a bit of a passion kiss, and, and that way you're staying in touch. You're mm-hmm. not just, you know, it's not like it's on or it's off, um, but there's different levels of interaction um, that couples can engage in. Mm. And so, yeah, did you want me to tackle the first question? yeah. yeah. So I guess the first question is, you know, what is sin, I guess, leading up to, Mm. you know, on the other side? And that's difficult because I, as a sexologist, I consider sex as any kind of interaction that is um, sexual arousal, where sexual arousal is involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... And that makes sense to me. I mean, as a person who studies the Bible, I'm just thinking about 1 Thessalonians 4. Yeah. And I'm... It's God's will that I not commit sexual immorality for a whole range of vertical reasons, but also the reason that I not wrong my brother, yes. who might be her future husband. Yeah. Yes. So, so I don't want me to be sexually aroused for somebody who's not, who isn't my wife and mm-hmm. isn't somebody else's future wife. Mm-hmm. Does, does that... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that's... Um, but, you know, I, one thing I'm... Sorry, no, no, you say? Go, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, the if you consider sex to be a garden, mm. a, a person, you know, two people are always going to be growing towards each other in intimacy. Mm. So it's normal and natural, actually, that people are heading towards mm. sex mm-hmm. when they're dating, when they're together, when they're engaged, mm-hmm. you know. It's a completely normal evolution, actually, for these different need, like feelings mm. to emerge. And so I, I just wanted to say that because I think sometimes people feel really bad for feeling these feelings towards their partner. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're completely normal and natural. It's what a, it's what a healthy garden does, mm-hmm. is grow towards each mm. other. Um, and I guess that's the element of when self-control and 
and things that are, are important to foster mm. with especially that early part of a relationship. And it's so hard for people these days because that early part can be years mm-hmm. for couples, mm. whereas in the Bible it wasn't that long mm. for couples to be um, in that, that phase, you know, that in, the, of growing towards each other in relationship. They got married pretty quick. Mm. <laughs> so, how, how can we make mistakes when people come to talk to us about past abuse? What I wanted, what I think is helpful is um, always putting straight out, straight off the bat, um, putting out the fact that there is professional help there mm-hmm. for them um, from a trauma-informed therapist uh, or a sex therapist. Um, that is really important because um, there's often a lot of um, deeper stuff that they need to mm-hmm. process through with someone that's qualified mm-hmm. to do that. But that doesn't mean you can't have a role in that space. And I think what, what, what mm. might a sex therapist say that's different to somebody who's an expert in post-traumatic kind of areas? How, how might the two different professions help? Um, yeah. I mean, you can only refer somebody to one person, really. Which one should you choose to refer sure. to? Sure. I think, you know, I, I, with, with, particularly with this question, I don't want to rule out trauma-informed therapists generally because there are some really good ones that mm-hmm. work particularly in the space of sexual trauma mm-hmm. that are not sex therapists mm-hmm. um and on on the flip side i don't want to rule out sex therapists who specialize in sexual trauma mm-hmm. um so i think that's where the kind of two circles almost overlap there are mm-hmm. a group of people that have different qualifications that both specialize and do a very good job of working mm-hmm. in that space um one is just going to have come from a, a psychological counselling background and then specialised mm-hmm. into this, this, you know, sexual um, trauma area. And the other one will have come from, uh, you know, sexual training and medical, you know, medical approach and then also specialised more in the counselling of trauma. But mm-hmm. I think the outcome is basically mm-hmm. going to be the same. So I'm a bit cautious to sort of divide the two. Mm-hmm. I think it's more about who it is and knowing whether they have a good track record of, working with people in this space mm-hmm. and that's you know word of mouth and um you know trusted people that you're working alongside with and that's the uh, the power of a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. team um you know that churches have people on their list that they know they can refer on to um in their in you know the, the community and i think that's important as mm-hmm. well so um yeah, but I think the, the, for ministers working in this space, the, the very first thing that they're going to be probably confronted with is shame, is shame the mm-hmm. impact of shame. Um, you know, and, and actually shame generally will flow into nearly everyone that comes to see mm-hmm. you in, in a space, whether it be from abuse or whether it be from past sexual experiences or homosexual experiences mm-hmm. or shame at even not having any experiences mm-hmm. at all. They're going to bring shame into the space so i think a bigger question for for ministers is how do we work with shame Mm -hmm. you know with the clients in uh, with the people in front of us and um there's a there's a great book this book that i um i like a lot i don't agree with everything but this is called sex god and the conservative church by tina sherma sellers the subtitle raising shame Shame from from sexual intimacy yeah Uh, yeah, yeah, what does she say there? Yeah, so that's um, I really like a framework that she uses in that book. It's called um, the uh, name, frame, claim, and aim framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the very first thing there is name. 
So being able to tell your story Mm -hmm. to somebody that is um, going to hold that space that I was telling you Mm -hmm. about, that safe space, for them to make meaning almost of, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to take what has they've experienced in the past, help them understand and make meaning of that so that they have hope for the future. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the goal here. Mm-hmm. So part of that is them having a chance to safely process what's happened to them in the eyes of somebody that um, is going to sit there and empathically and, and compassionately hear them and not re- like re- react or you know, just listen to them and hold them mm-hmm. and um, ex- and accept them. That is the first step to actually breaking shame mm-hmm. because shame is is part as a fear that people are going to reject you if you show them who you are. Mm-hmm. So it goes and manifests as shame. So if you can sit there with a minister, with your partner, with a friend that you trust and, sh- and tell your story and see that it's not going to um, push them away, that's actually part of the healing of shame. That's the mm-hmm. first step of healing. The next step is frame, and that's the framework, providing um, them a healthy framework of information in the sexual realm, whether it be about their trauma, whether it be about sexual function, if they haven't done a lot of reading in that space. I've got another book here, you know, for newly married couples, um, you know, Sex Awakened um, by Renee Yam. That just came out recently. So Cultivating um, Healthy Sexual Intimacy in Marriage, Renee Yam. Yeah, that's just for newly married couples, a very basic overview um, for, you know, so there's yeah. kind of referring on, there's a great book by Emily Nagoski called Come As You Are, not by a Christian, but really fantastic um, and helpful for women understanding their own bodies. So framing, like a healthy framework and of understanding. So as you talk about mm-hmm. shame and particularly premarital couples, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that a number of the conversations I've ended up having have been, I mean, we've had a lot of people converted as young adults. And so yeah. having been saved at young adults, they've had extensive sexual experience. They've stopped having sexual activity as they've come to Christ. Mm-hmm. And now they're about to get married. And yes. some of that sexual act- activity has been with heterosexual partners. Some of it's been sometimes with homosexual partners. Yep. But now we're preparing them for heterosexual marriage. Yes. And and that's a conversation now of kind of my messy past yes. that's on the table. Yes. And um, yes. h- h- give me some advice. <laughs> yeah, so as I was saying, this name, frame, then claim. I think this is the, the claim part. So for me, claiming is like claiming your body and I do somatic work with that, but I think for ministers, the claim part is claiming God's vision of sexuality mm-hmm. um, for them to mm-hmm. understand how that how that fits for them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and were you going to say something? No, no, no. Um, and I guess the final one is is aim. What is their new legacy? What is their new story? Mm-hmm. What are the new values that? What are the values that they want to take from their past into the current space? And are there any values that they they don't? think was working for them or is not biblically aligned, but they were just told, Um, you know, so it's about forming a new story with their partner, but not ignoring their old story or not ignoring their past, but using what they've learned from the past to to pay forward a hopeful future for Mm -hmm. them. And that's important, that that aim part, the new legacy that they're about to make um, is an important part of that, that journey. So that's what I would say in terms of how do you help people with shame it's about almost taking them through that, mm-hmm. you know, helping them tell their story, helping them to get the information they need. Tell, and tell their story to their new partner, to their fiancé, yeah, and yeah. to confess and apologise and, 
Yeah, yeah. And if that, and, and encouraging the, the fiancé to be that safe space, to hold that container. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that they can see that they're not going to receive rejection, they're not going to receive judgment, but that they can hold that container for their partner and just listen. And, and offer not, forgiveness. And often forgiveness, yeah. 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 Um, mm-hmm. Women and porn, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, what's, how do you speak into that space? Yeah. We, we've, we've spent a, a lot of time on the pastor's heart talking yes. about men and porn, and I yes. just thought, while I've got you, I'll throw that question <laughs> at you. <laughs> yeah, well, look, men and women both look at porn, yeah. you know, and as the stats are particularly now going up, you know, um, accessibilities there and... It it's it doesn't make it any less of a problem for you know women. It's still an issue, and I think probably the the bigger issue here is shame for women because it's not spoken about as much as it is for men. So mm-hmm. they they have they have that extra layer of shame that they bring with mm-hmm. them when they're talking about or when they're confessing to somebody about their problem with porn or their you know they're addicted to porn or whatever it might be. So it's I guess it's important, particularly important for women that they that space is is held you mm-hmm. know for them and then i think as as i was talking about before it's it's part of the journey is understanding well what what is their underlying need what's going on for them that is leading them to needing this in their life mm-hmm. and so it actually means leaning into the addiction or leaning into what they're doing not mm-hmm. putting a like immediate stop and not telling them just to kind of run away because actually there's something about what's happening in that space that is leading them to that. And sometimes even a helpful question is, you know, what would you lose if we took this away? Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, what would you miss in your life? Because it's obviously filling a need. And could we fill that need with God in some mm-hmm. way or community or, you know, what is that that you're actually turning to porn for? Um, and, you know, how can we reconnect you with, with God and how can you, you know, how can you feel that? So you, do you need validation from God? Um, you know, the, the healing of the shame once they feel seen by God and mm-hmm. understood. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of healing that can happen as mm-hmm. they understand how they're, how they're seen mm-hmm. before God as a child of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the, the healing happens. And then, of course, there's referring on to somebody like a therapist that could work with helping them. Because um, what's what's, hap- what's often happened is the the pathway, the neural pathway, is very is formed along a particular way. Mm-hmm. So then, within therapy, there needs to be a space to help them understand firstly the differences between porn and real life, and secondly, how do how do they actually experience pleasure in their bodies, mm-hmm. so that we can start to redirect their desire in a healthy way with their partners if they're with the partner um, so that that can be a far more enjoyable experience than than the porn experience mm-hmm. and then starts to kind of then they're on a different neural pathway mm-hmm. that is being continually strengthened as they're enjoying their you know sex with somebody that mm-hmm. you know is, is far more meaningful and mm-hmm. and also while that need is being met in other ways mm. that they're turning you know so um, but that's the same for men too, you know, that's kind of the work that we do with men as well. So mm-hmm. it's not too big a difference there. But I just think being really delicate and, and gentle with women because there, there is an added level of shame and layer of shame for them because it's not spoken about mm-hmm. is really important. Um, mm. Yeah. 
Was that? Yeah. yeah. Um, talk to me about questions that uh, I and others as senior pastors can ask when we're wanting to touch base with couples and just to explore how they're going. I'm just thinking um, mm-hmm. uh, last night I, or on Sunday night at church, I, um, I said to a, a bride of a few months, um, so how are you surviving married life? Do you know? Mm-hmm. And which was kind of giving her the space mm-hmm. <laughs> to not have to pretend it was all roses if it wasn't roses. And yeah. she said, thanks for asking that. Now, mm-hmm. how do I do that in the area of sex or is it appropriate for me to do that in terms of touching base with how are people moving in that direction? Yeah, yeah um, I think that's a great question. I think that the the issue is really always what is the motivation of your asking? Mm, yeah. You know, um, what do you want from that conversation? Yeah. And um, and it comes down to the pastor's heart, yeah. I guess, as as he's um, asking that question, is the motivation to kind of get the juicy details. Well, the motivation is not voyeuristic. Obviously not the for mo- you. The right, mo- exactly. The, the motivation you know? is is just recognising if that area is not going wrong yes. and we're not nipping this, sorry, if that area is not going right yes. and we're not moving to work out how to help that area, then yeah. in the end we've got bigger problems Absolutely. down the track. You know? And Absolutely. so I've, I've found... Um, often, and I'm very willing to be corrected, but I found mm-hmm. often that how things are going sexually is often a litmus test or a barometer for how things are going in the rest of the relationship. Absolutely. And yeah. and often it's a really helpful diagnostic question for yeah. is the relate is the whole relationship in trouble or not? Yes. But so I'm just trying to really work out how to ask that litmus test question well. Yes, yes. And, I mean, it could go the other way so too. That's that, my pastor's heart. Yeah. yeah, no, perfect. And that's that's great. And I think just being aware of that, but also communicating that mm-hmm. is important, not keeping that to yourself and mm-hmm. saying, you know, I really care about, um, you know, I care about marriage and, and I love healthy, happy relationships. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've not, you know, the, the stats say that in the first year of marriage, things are tough, so I mm. just wanted to check in mm. and see you know, how you guys are going, but then, you know, um, what you were saying is the litmus test idea that sometimes the set, you know, it's a litmus test for how the rest of the relationship can go. It can be the other way. I mean, I'm just going from my own anecdotal conversations with people, but would you agree with that? It can be the other way too. It can be that this, the fact that the sex isn't working is also impacting on all their other relationships. So it's hard to know what comes first. Is the relationship an issue and therefore they're not having sex or is the sex, there's something happening in the sexual space that's meaning their relationship isn't going so well mm. because there's that pressure of But, but you, would you agree with the correlation? I mean, with the, the, your, yeah. you were discussing which, which one was causing the other, but yeah. you, would you say yes. that there is a correlation? There? Yes, yeah. most definitely, yeah. And so, you know, you can. You, I guess you can get to that either way. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, go straight in and ask, you know, how's, how's the intimacy or I, even for me, a really good question to ask is, um, have you guys faced um, any differences of opinion in this, in mm-hmm. that space? Do you have any mm-hmm. difference, different opinions? Have mm-hmm. you found that you don't agree on, on areas within this space? And that will often open up um, good conversation if they're struggling. That's a really struggling. good question because it's not yeah. quite as in the core of what's going on, it's more talking about how are your conversations going. Exactly, yeah, and like how that. are you talking about that? Yeah, you know, and that's literally how you can how you can frame it too. Is how how is how are you talking about that? Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, how can we, how can we support you or, you know, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And also, I guess, affirming the fact that it's um, completely normal mm-hmm. to have these issues and, you know, I, that there's, there's help. And so, you know, mm-hmm. kind of always, but I think part of it is putting out straight out of the bat that, that your motives out there and asking that question that always helps people mm-hmm. understand the frame of your question mm-hmm. and then giving them open-ended questions for them to take that, you know, where they want. And I guess also um, if you are in a conversation about sex with someone, I always say, if I ask a question that you don't want to answer, feel free to say pass, mm-hmm. you know, and that gives them then the autonomy. You can go play all sorts of places. You can ask the question, but you've already said right up front, that there is no pressure on you to feel like you have to answer it if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. And that all also puts people at ease knowing that they've got an easy pass mm-hmm. and they're not squirming under the question of the minister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's good to also throw in there. My guest on The Pastor's Heart, Monica Cook, she's a Christian, she's a sexologist, and it's been good for us to listen and learn from her on what she wishes senior pastors knew about sex. Looking forward to your company next week on The Pastor's Heart. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.